Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent, they cost half as much as in-house developers and... You know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days, no risk. We guarantee being on time and on budget, or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.io. Let's talk about your SaaS project today. Today, I have Adam Stone, CEO and founder of Speedlancer. Adam, while being a young entrepreneur, has no shortage of accolades under his belt already, such as starting his first business at 12 and being accepted to 500 Startups Accelerator in Silicon Valley. Today, we're going to speak with Adam about how he found the idea for Speedlancer, how he built the MVP, and his experience building his companies from zero to 30,000 MRR and beyond. How are you today, Adam? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Excited to have you on the show. I gave you a quick intro, but why don't you just tell us about who you are and what Speedlancer is? Yeah, thank you, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I've always been an entrepreneur. I started at the age of 12. I'm from Australia, in case you can't hear with the accent, but normally live in Los Angeles, where I will be as soon as I can get a vaccine. <laughs> That's the plan. But right now, in sunny Burley Heads, which is a beach town here in Australia, pretty beautiful okay. place to run a company. <laughs> yeah, I started my first business at the age of 12, which was selling toys on eBay, mm -hmm. uh, which gave me you know, a great first experience. I would recommend that to any a uh, kid who's interested in entrepreneurship, uh, running a small, you know, e-commerce style business. It's now easier than ever. Of course, you've got to have willing parents to to put up their name on a lot of the PayPal accounts and that sort of thing. Um, but when I was 14, I started my first quote unquote real business. And that was in the cell phone software space. Mm -hmm. uh, it was bootstrapped. Uh, we became the number one retail provider in our niche or in our industry uh, and we also serviced TELUS, which is the largest telco company in Canada. My software was in 160 retail stores as a POS solution. We grew that business to over seven figures in revenue and profit. Um, and again, it was bootstrapped. But the reason I was able to do that, especially at a high profit and at such a young age, was thanks to the power of freelancers. Uh, so I was in high school and university running this business. And yeah, I just needed people who could run it. And I was studying full time. So I had to make a, a really, it had to be very process oriented because I just didn't have much time to run the business either. And so mm. at its peak, I was actually getting it down to a 10 minute work week for myself. A few Tim Ferriss. No, I love Tim Ferriss, but <laughs> um, yeah. 10 minutes is greater than four hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But better than, you know. Um, but yeah, I was using Odesk at the time to power basically the entire operations of the business. And what we did was create processes for each specific department if you want to call it that or function of the company so we had customer support like enterprise customer support and translation services all under one tier and i remember we had a 66 page uh, manual on exactly how to run the entire operations of the business and so we created this framework 
for that department of that function to kind of operate self-sustainably and instantly be able to train in new people. So when we um, signed on TELUS, for example, we had to double or triple our business within a two-week period. And to do that, we used our um, kind of processes to onboard new people instantly. So basically SOPs. Yeah, exactly SOPs. But SOPs kind of very tailored to freelancers. And I can go into that a bit more about what makes them specific. But that kind of became the framework for Speedlancer, which is, as a a basic premise, it's not only providing freelance talent, like we don't necessarily hire them out full time, but we're bolting them into SOPs and then selling those into companies. And we call them workflows. So we're selling predefined workflows into companies and running them and they're powered by freelancers. And that's what Speedlancer is about. As I understand, then, essentially, you're selling uh, like a made-for-you service where the, the freelancers are already trained by you, and then you sell that as a package. Is that correct? So somebody would say, like, I need four people, uh, and you would sell them, like, as a package to supplement whatever, you know, say they're doing design or something like that. Or can I go, as 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 an entrepreneur, can I go and get a task done as a one-off or am I more looking to buy a, a package? Yeah. So what we do is rather than just supplying four people and then saying, here you go, go manage those people. Freelancers tend to be very hard to manage. It's not like you've got a, them as a full timer. It's not like, you know, they're a cultural fit and had a strong opportunity to interview them. So I don't mm-hmm. necessarily believe in that thesis. What we do at Speedlancer, which is quite unique is we're bundling tasks together and routing them out on demand. So we're actually not pre-training people. We're training them on the fly. So for example, we will sell like a webinar extraction workflow. I forget the exact name that we use, but let's say a sales organization or a sales department in a company is, is producing webinars. This workflow will extract the value out of that webinar and create social media content. Okay. So quite simple. But the team members will be someone to do transcription, someone to do video editing and captioning, someone to take uh, like a researcher goes in and finds the best quotes. Then we'll take those snippets and make social media snippets and Instagram stills and LinkedIn content out of it. We'll write a blog post to go along with it. We'll do an infographic and then we'll help the customer syndicate it. So what we're doing is actually using our workflow engine, spinning that up, routing tasks to multiple people in that order, adding them into Slack automatically and removing them when the work is done. Um, And basically you get a campaign delivered without even needing to know that they're freelancers that did the work at the end of the day. Okay, I see. So it is a SaaS, eh? Because it sounds like it's a blend of software as as a service and almost like an agency type model. Yeah, so Um, we've got people and tech and we're able to do services that kind of... Agencies, I think of like, they're really good at strategy. They're really good at projects. But they don't really do ongoing type grunt work. And that's where we like to sit. Okay. Processes, yeah. Good. I just want to take a step back um, to your previous company. Um, It sounds like it was going really well. Why did you sell it? Yeah, so I actually didn't sell it. Um, I knew at the time that it was at its peak. It was a great first business, but I knew that that industry wasn't going to last. It was, you know, but when the iPhone started to come out and really become popular, our technology became less useful. Um, and I just knew that was coming and there was less of a need. So when it was at its peak, that's when I was actually in 500 startups building up Speedlancer. Okay. So you sort of saw the writing on the wall then you was like, okay, this is going to fade. I need yeah. to get something else going. This is when you discovered the, the problem with the existing like Odesk and which has now become Upwork, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was kind of, 
yeah, I mean, I was running that business. I knew it wasn't going to last. I didn't know what my next thing would be, but at the same time, I'd encountered this issue and I kind of stumbled across what I thought might be a solution. But at the time, I was 19 when I started like a very early iteration of Speed Lancer. Um, without much of a vision, I just knew like the broad problem that we wanted to solve, which was like using technology to make freelancers better. Because you weren't happy with the existing freelancers at Odesk or you weren't happy with uh, with Odesk itself, like the, the service? Yeah, it's a good question. I find it more of a systemic thing than like blaming either the platform or the freelancers. I think it's a problem with both in a sense. I mean, I've got like uh, Perry, for example, who's been working for me for 10 years now full time. I met him off Odesk. And, yeah. um, you know, these people are incredible, extremely hard workers. To onboard someone, though, it's actually quite difficult. Yeah. As I mentioned, like, when you're not interviewing them face-to-face, you don't have much time to get to know them. I mean, now it's getting a bit easier with things like Zoom. Um, But even so, like, the cultural fit mechanism, like, freelancers, they're not necessarily also working for you full-time. They might have multiple clients. So the whole dynamic just didn't really make sense to me. And companies have problems using platforms like Odesk and now Upwork to hire because the recruiting tends to be a long period of time. They need to put in as much effort as their recruiting department would spend hiring someone internally. And at the end of the day, they're getting maybe a part-time worker who really you've got no enforcement on anyway. Like if yeah. someone's working in-house, they've got a contract. You know they're going to come to work every day. Um, when you're hiring someone part-time, contractor basis, online, like you've never kind of met them in real life, you don't have that trust factor. So it's kind of the culmination of all of these things that, made me want to look at the model in a new way. So you're using this talent in, and the gig-based talent and really trying to integrate them into companies in new ways. Okay, so essentially your goal is to have a contract that goes indefinitely with the company, essentially. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So our goal is to sell ongoing workflows that solve ongoing problems while respecting okay. that freelancers actually want the opposite sometimes. So that right. freelancers want ultimate flexibility. Right. Okay. So we provide them gap filler work. Okay, so essentially, from the company's perspective, a freelancer may leave, they may never know, because you're replacing them with some other talent, I see. That's the ultimate. If we can achieve that goal, then I'll know we've done our job. Okay, and and do you feel like you're there? Yeah, I mean, well, I'd say 95% there. Okay, Um, well, that sounds good, yeah. And that's actually reflected in our customer satisfaction, too. So we're at about 94% of tasks are delivered with a 4 out of 5 rating or above, which I'm proud of. But yeah. still, it means that if a workflow has 10 tasks in it, that means every two workflows, we're stuffing something up. And that's mm-hmm. not, it means every one in two experiences is bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So again, going back, you mentioned that you went to the 500 startups. Why did you decide to get outside money? It sounds like a business that you could have bootstrapped because you're essentially ar- using arbitrage, right? You're getting freelancers and marking up, like sort of an agency model. What was the thinking behind like, you know, going to get investment money? So that's a loaded question. And my previous company was bootstrapped. This one I've raised for and we're opening around soon. So yeah, I've definitely got a perspective perspective on like bootstrap versus raising. The first question you asked though was, why did I join 500 startups? I actually wasn't expecting to. So I met Dave McClure at a startup event in Australia, uh-huh. uh, which I was kind of interning at. And I put up my hand and I made a pitch to, like everyone else in the room at the accelerator, but another accelerator was. Um, and he came up to me afterwards. He said, how can I invest? And I said, no, I'm studying law. Like, you know, I've got a few more years left. Can I join 500 next year? Maybe. Yeah. He said, no, it's now or never. 
And so two weeks later, I was in San Francisco <laughs> as the oh, really? second youngest okay. founder to go through the program with basically no product and no revenue, um, which was extremely. So you were so you were like <laughs> not ready. You were not really ready. So you were you were sort of thinking, oh, okay, oh, next year maybe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so okay. not ready to the point where when I was in 500 and I met with some very high level funds who like came to speak to some select founders uh, and, and one of them in particular asked me, so how much are you raising? I said, I don't know if I'm raising and if I am, I don't know how much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, best you work that out before you meet with us. I said, okay, <laughs> point taken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I learned that lesson pretty quick. But the other question you asked was like, why does Speedlancer need money? And I think that's a big question. First of all, the technology that we built and are building, as I mentioned, we're using like a hybrid of technology and, and software to really change the way that companies interact with freelancers. That's mm -hmm. kind of our goal or our mission. So technology is always going to be the focus, which often requires outside capital. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is there's just so many verticals that we can move into. So webinar workflows is like one very recent one that we've found to be a good niche, but we've got, you know, 10 other ones and a hundred that we can envision that we can go into. So that requires capital. Right. For growth. Yeah. For growth yeah. and product and, and then marketing, right? So we want to become like a mainstream platform that companies trust to, to get a new array of processes done in a way they've never been able to do before. And the last thing you touched on was like arbitrage. I think the old school freelancing platforms are, are needing arbitrage to survive. Why are you going to use Upwork if you can hire someone kind of locally for the same price, right? Like, so that's the arbitrage. I don't like to focus on arbitrage because arbitrage opportunities normally always come to an end. <laughs> yeah. um, we are somewhat creating our own arbitrage in the sense that we're productizing our services so we can actually charge what we want and pay out what we want. Mm -hmm. So I just call that margin. Okay, that makes sense, margin, yeah. All right, so when you spoke with um, Dave McClure, did you have a working platform at that time? God, no. No, you didn't. I had built, uh, to start this business, I had hacked together Help Scout. Yeah. Which is a support ticketing software. Yeah, great one. Brilliant software. And um, a an Unbounce homepage. Wow, this goes way back. Yeah. Um, so Unbounce was the homepage. There was a little checkout mechanism that I'd had a developer on like Upwork or something build. Mm -hmm. And when someone created a task and submitted a payment, then it would create a ticket within Help Scout. Yeah. And we kind of outgrew that because what happened was even with like 10 tasks a day or something, what happened was the freelancers would assign themselves and overwrite the other person. So they would steal other, other freelancers' tasks. And it's kind of cool to see people hacking your platform. Like it's, yeah. that only happens when you're doing something right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like That's we had good. a volume, even a small volume, but like we were solving a need for the freelancers because they were trying to steal other people's work. Yeah, And then yeah. we were solving a need for the customers because they were sending us work. And that's when we outgrew it. And, and during 500, we had the we had the money to then go build out a platform where that problem didn't exist anymore. <laughs> what was it that uh, you think Dave saw in the potential of the platform? Or was do you think it was more that he was impressed by you as a founder? Yeah, I think the latter. I remember him marveling about um, like the four-hour thing and how he'd known Tim Ferriss. And the four-hour work week had kind of just come out in the last couple of years before that. Yeah. So I, I think... He, I think he saw potential in the idea, but we didn't have anything other than the product. But I think he, I think he liked talking to me. Yeah, yeah. He sensed sort of some enthusiasm and passion 
for the project, I guess. And so he was like, okay, you know, I want you to come out to, you know, San Francisco. And yeah, I mean, Dave is pretty outlandish in general. I mean, his whole theory was investing in outliers. So, you yeah. know, I mean, putting myself in his shoes, young guy, I would have been the youngest entrepreneur in the room, 19 or something. Um, I had another business that was bootstrapped and this one, which I didn't really have a clue what it was about. I didn't know anything about Silicon Valley and fundraising. And he was probably like, okay, this guy looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like a good candidate. So tell me about that process. How did you find five, 500 startups? It obviously sounds like a very positive experience. Can you tell me about that experience and what you learned out of it? Yeah, I mean, it was a life-changing experience um, in just so many ways. First of all, the alumni network, like some of my closest entrepreneur friends came from 500. One of them actually sold his company for $425 million a couple of months ago. Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. When you met him, so presumably in, in four or five years, he was able to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he likes to remind me that he slept on my couch once in, in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's great. It's just... It's it's really cool. Um, yeah, just like great friends. I mean, they don't have to be successful. Some of them are just like, you know, really good friends um, to date, which is just amazing. Then the like mentor network. I mean, I'm still in touch with them as well. Uh-huh. You're just in the weeds with them. And they were so committed, like just insanely dedicated and so talented. That was just incredible. And then from a personal level, I mean, as I said, that was one stuff up from a VC meeting that I had the opportunity to experience. My first VC meeting ever was with Coastal Ventures. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I went down to Sand Hill Road. Uh-huh. I had no idea who Coastal were. I had no idea what a VC was. I had no idea what these meetings were about. I'm like, I don't know why they even want to meet with me. Mm-hmm. And I went there. It's just funny to how far you can come in five or six years. Like, yeah, I, I shook hands with the associate, sat down for two and a half minutes. And then he's like, all right, well, thanks for coming. And I walked out. And it was a two and a half minute meeting. I went back to 500 and they asked, how'd you go? Coastal wanted to meet with you. Like, how was it? I was like, yeah, I think I went great. And they're like, well, that's amazing. Tell us what happened. I was like, well, you know, it was like, we talked about this and this. I went through my pitch deck, which was like, we were four months from demo day. I had no pitch deck other than like a few words on white slides, like really an outline. Right. <laughs> and they said, how long was the meeting? You're back very quickly. I said, two and a half minutes. Is that good? And they go, no, that's it went horribly. Sorry to tell you. <laughs> and I just laugh. It's like just yeah. First of all, it goes to show you how much like an accelerator can teach you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how much progress one can make in six years. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So what um what can you give some people that maybe are looking at trying to get into an accelerator? I mean, what do you feel? You were pre-revenue, right? Yeah. Oh, at that I, time, I think we we're doing two hundred dollars a month in revenue. Okay, like, so essentially, I was doing four tasks. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's a, a freelancing platform, which doesn't, to me, sound like that uh, groundbreaking. What made you stand out amongst those two thousand other applicants? Do you feel? Yeah, again, I think it was uh, well. Most of the applicants, that, most of the people in the batch that I know or knew, came through having spoken to a partner. So they say there's two thousand applicants, and then thirty get in. So uh-huh. they say you know it's quite difficult. But, you know, if you network your way in, it's like anything. It's pretty personal. Okay, so networking, you felt like that would probably... The fact that you had met Dave and you had come all the way from Australia to to do that. Does everyone there when... I mean, is that sort of a thing that people fly out and kind of are physically there to go through the vetting process? Uh, I actually did it over Skype. Okay. Um, and I remember there were like eight partners in the room. 
<laughs> okay. which is quite daunting. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's how mine was done. Okay, good. So after the uh, accelerator, were you, you're building at this time, like how much input do you feel like was coming from the accelerator? Or was it mostly the motivation by being there? You got some funds. How? Tell me about the MVP process. Yeah, so that first one was really hacked together. The second platform, I used an overseas firm to, to build it out. And by then we had like a nice looking platform. Um, then growth became the challenge. We actually, to, to our credit, we grew pretty quickly. I mean, we grew from $200 a month to like 3000 or $3,500 a month within like two months being there. You did? Okay, um, so what was the growth channel there? or what? How did you do that? Product Hunt was very useful. I think changing our model a little bit was also useful, making it more streamlined and having like a checkout on the site itself. Okay. So we were just learning like... Um, this is... So sorry, just to go back, this is about what, 2017 or something? 2015. 2015. Okay. So, okay. I didn't realize Product Hunt was still around then. Um, yeah. It had just actually come out uh, maybe a year before. Okay. And so you were in 500 startups at this time. So were you back in Australia or were you in California? I was in San Francisco, yeah. Okay. So you're working on this. Did you have the funds and was that sort of you started putting some money into the platform? Is that what, what got it to make the changes and what were the changes specifically? Because that is, that's essentially what I'm trying to capture because that's momentum, right? That 200 to 3,000 in two months. I want to know what happened in that time period. Yeah, I think that's just about exposing yourself to as many opportunities as possible, right? So that's early when the press can help. We got listed in Inc.com. Through the 500 startups, there was some press Actually, no, like I was, I had snuck into a, a, mart, a marketing technology conference and I met the journalist, uh, Travis Wright. So he wrote um, us in Inc.com as the Uber of freelancing, okay. which was an incredible headline. And yeah. I just met him at this conference that I snuck into <laughs> yeah. um, and I met him and uh, I was like, Hey, are you you know willing to write an article on us? Here's what we're doing. He's like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> okay. Um, and yeah, that was pretty cool. But yeah. And then product hunt, product hunt was a huge needle mover actually. And then just like hust- it was, it was a lot of hustle. Like I say, I didn't know what hustle was until I got into 500. Hustle is, and when you use that term, you mean you're getting out, like you're out, like sort of networking and as you say, like sneaking into events and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that's like all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. PR, like messaging journalists on Twitter. Um, you know, I was working like, I would get into the office at 10 a.m. and leave at 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. Okay. So, and a lot of, obviously, a lot of hard work as well. Yeah. Um, and then meeting like the other founders in 500. And I think, uh, okay. So, so one thing that works, okay. Cold email. That was a big one. So cold okay. email. At that time, well. do you still yeah. use it? We use other cold channels. Cold email I've kind of put on the back burner at the moment. Okay. I've noticed that responses have been quite low, but yeah, we're an outbound sales process. Okay. Um, so we've kind of paused most inbound activities. Which is funny because we help other companies with inbound activities, but <laughs> yeah, um, that is interesting. That, that's good. I I like to you know most of the people that I speak with are are a blend, but it's interesting to hear that you're mostly outbound. We'll get into that a little bit later, but okay. So all right, so you're at you're at twenty five hundred. You did this. It sounds like you probably made some important tweaks to the product as well. You slicked up the uh, interface, improved the checkout process. 
what were some of the challenges that you remember um, during this time? Like, was did, when you got to twenty five hundred, did you hit a plateau, or maybe take me from that next sort of phase of growth? Like, where did you go from twenty five hundred a month? That was a significant plateau, and by significant, I meant like I was probably stuck at that mark for another twelve months. Okay, yeah. Um, was that because of churn? Okay, so churn was one thing, but the reason churn was a thing was because we weren't recurring revenue. Okay. Nor did we have a sustainable marketing or sales channel. So we were relying on like these events like promotion on Product Hunt or Inc.com or a cold email channel working for a bit or getting some customers from cold email. Then they would sign up, submit a task or two. But like we learned that that's not how customers actually want to interface with us. They don't actually want to interface with us with, with, with a single task. They wanted us to solve ongoing problems for them. Okay. So I think changing our product direction over the next couple of years was quite pivotal. And I can definitely go into that because we got our cart size from $50 on average to then $600 on average to then $6,000 on average. And now sometimes we're doing deals that are $60,000. Really? Okay. So, That's, yeah. So we've 1,000x our cart size in the last five years. This is during this time period where you plateaued at $2,500 a month. You're just racking your brain. What's the problem? Or you knew the problem. You knew the problem was that people are just coming in and they're doing one-offs. And so you say, well, how do I get this customer to come back? Well, I get to change my offer. Yes. And it occurred to me that we were doing outbound sales. 500 was like, you got to hustle. You got to hustle, do whatever it takes, call people, email people. But that's kind of an illusion because you're doing that. And I remember I'm on the phone selling a $50 task to someone and getting excited when they submit a $50 task over the phone. I'm like, this is... This is doing my head in. Yeah, yeah. It's insane, right? Yeah. Like my other business was still doing like whatever it was doing. And I'm like, fuck, why am I, why am I even on the phone for, for 50, 50 bucks? bucks. Yeah, that's right. And oh, a margin on 50 bucks, you know? like Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. So it's just like ridiculous. But it was bringing in revenue, but I was like sweating. You know? Right. Talk about sweat equity. Like yeah. it was just pure like hustle. But like what ended up happening was customers started to ask for bigger and bigger things. So if all of a sudden, instead of asking for, you know, hey, can you like revise our site copy or design this banner graphic? It became, can you do my pitch deck? Can you make this website? And I was like, well, yeah. Or can you do this webinar or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're asking for actually useful things. Yeah. And by that point, I went, aha. Uh-huh. Yes, you can. Like for a pitch deck, you need a copywriter. You need a designer. Like a, yeah, you need like an icon designer. You need a PowerPoint designer and like a Photoshop expert. Yeah. Not in that order, but like. But you need four or five people, yeah. You need four or five people to do an incredible deck or you need one expert. And you can charge $10,000 for it or something, you know, if it's good, right? Yeah. I mean, we were charging 500 bucks, but yes, exactly. But that's what got the $50 to the 500 bucks because we were bundling four or five tasks together and then charging more. That was the secret. So our margins doubled as well. Okay, so I'm trying to envision this from the offer end. What were you? Do, how did you position yourself on that? Then you, you change, like I'm imagining coming at that time to whatever your product space is, and you say get a web banner done. Did you change it so that it's like get a, a um, get a pitch deck done, or how are you attracting that type of client to get those tasks done? So the MVP of that was done kind of. Uh, with our relationships with existing clients. And again, I was hustling. So like any new business that I brought in, they were starting to ask for these things. We were selling it, right? And it still wasn't like life-changing. Again, it was one-off, 
but at least it was 10 times higher. Right. Um, so I knew that we were onto something. But then what happened was it still didn't change the recurring revenue problem. Like every month I was still having to sweat still, and hustle yeah, still, yeah. to get the same numbers as last month. Right. So for another year, I was really struggling as well. But at least our revenue went up to like four or five K a month at okay. that point. Okay. So sounds like the first plateau is 2,500. You figured out how to double your revenues. You got up to, let's call it 5K. This is two years time. This is sort of over 20. Yeah. I mean, we were also completely cash strapped. So I had visa issues going back to the US. Some consulate official had just rejected my visa because he found it odd that a young person would have a US company. So he thought that I was using my visa to illegally immigrate into the US, okay. which was just ridiculous. But that was a two year setback as well. Uh -huh. Um, and we actually had, after 500 startups, a fund offering half a million. He's like, all right, just come here to sign the check. And I was like, well, I, I can't. You know, as I said, I can't get yeah. there. He's like, yeah. well, realistically, not your fault, but we can't make this happen. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so that was a shame. And since then, I've actually had three subsequent fundraising rounds, like due diligence stage, term sheets, like collapse. So <laughs> I could talk about failure as much as I can anything. But yeah, so the next stage of the growth came from converting it to recurring revenue. And everyone said, that's kind of stupid. Like you shouldn't be forcing people into recurring. How does it work for this when people actually want ad hoc needs? And actually that wasn't the case. It became, I'd say 10 times easier to sell a product that was recurring revenue because customers were speaking to us knowing that we were going to commit them to something that they actually wanted. So we, we ended up solving a longer term problem for them. They were not coming to us with, oh yeah, you could maybe help us with with this pitch deck, but it became, okay, you're actually filling this future resource issue that we're going to have. Right. As you say, filling the gaps, the gaps yeah. in, in Sam, like I'm a startup, I've got say five to 10 people. Is that your sweet spot? I imagine, you know, where there's, and they're, they don't need a full-time designer or the designer is busy or something like that. Yeah. But it turns out that startups are sometimes the worst clients to have. They run out of money faster than anyone else. Yeah. They have much higher expectations and demands. Much easier to sell to traditional business, we found. Okay. All right. So so it could even be a brick and mortar that someone that's trying to do vanners and things like uh Yeah, I mean, uh, we're hoping a kitchenware chain, which is nationwide and helping them with their collateral and like converting 900 images from their website to Pinterest, you know, uh -huh. stuff like that. So was the package then changed to for a recurring? Was it just simply like okay, you can get such and such amount of work hours for five hundred a month, and you can get more for a thousand? Is that how you changed it? Just to keep it yeah, simple. Yeah, so it became a kind of it became a credit based system. We were doing five hundred dollars a month. We gave people a concierge, which they really liked. We had a Slack integration by that point, so they had access to that, meaning they could like contact their concierge through Slack. It would then spin up a channel in their own Slack account and add the freelancers and remove them, which is still the basis for what we do now. Um, we're like the platform without a platform and it's still all automated, which is pretty nifty. Yeah. And, and, and now we've got packages that range, you know, even three and a half thousand dollars a month. Okay. Um, when we're solving. Are you familiar with uh, many pixels? Yeah. I am is actually. it similar he to used that? To post a lot of Facebook marketing in groups, I think. That's right. Is it familiar to that? Because they do designers, but it's sort of like that. Like, let's say I get a package of three, I get two designers for, you know, whatever it is, 600. And um, it's similar to that sort of concept, at least for the business model. I mean, obviously, you're providing a lot more services. 
Yeah, in a way, I mean, I mean, if a customer is dealing with us for tasks, then yes, it becomes more like AnyPixel. If you're a customer looking at us for those workflows, quite different, I would say. Right, right, okay. Okay. Well, it's like a podcast editing is a perfect example. So we've got a podcast editing flow where, I mean, you might be the one editing your podcast, but what about a little audio snippet and like a wave animation, uh-huh. uh, custom animated graphic of the guest and you, which we actually illustrate write a blog post to go along with it will help um yeah we'll create different social media like clips mm-hmm. um so yeah those are that's another example okay. of a workflow or package yeah so at, at this time you're at say um five thousand was there a time that you remember where it's like all of a sudden it just the growth like something just happened and growth started just starting going in that nice sort of not necessarily hockey stick, but at least linear fashion going upward now. You've no longer plateaued. Was there a time, was it maybe when you came out with those recurring packages and all of a sudden that, that started to grab? Yeah, it tended to be the changes in the product that sort of equaled or led to a step change in growth. Okay. Um, so we have certainly not had an exponential growth in the traditional sense, but we've had step changes in growth. So like we do something, happens very quickly. And then Steady. Plateau. Racking with my head. Yeah. Yeah. Plateau, racking with my head, and then change the product, and then boom. And then racking with my head, and then boom. <laughs> okay. Um, the most recent one happened like last quarter. So we doubled in that last quarter, which was really cool. Really? Um, okay. 2020. So, yeah. so, okay. So you made a change in the platform and you started to grow more steadily, at least. So, what, what was going on? What were some of the other challenges that you remember going? I mean, how is the growth? in terms of managing the team and things like that, was there ever a, a challenge with that? Cause it sounds like you were in Australia some of the time you're in the U S um, was that a challenge managing the team? I think time zone is an underrated issue, <laughs> but that's kind of obvious. Right. Especially you know, dealing with Australia. That's, that's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, West coast is fine, but if I'm dealing with East coast in the U S and Europe, Europe it's, yeah. uh, Europe, Europe's okay. But East coast U S is impossible to do business. Yeah. Because when it's 6 PM there, it's, 9am for me that's right yeah so it's just <laughs> so you is get... just like i can wake up an hour early but i still haven't caught them in that day <laughs> yeah 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 time zones is that why you're moving to la or are you moving to la yeah. because because that's where all the financing stuff is you have to kind of be out there with the you know your investors yeah i mean first of all i just love the energy of the u.s um second of all like yeah absolutely being where your customers are and being where your investors are is kind of a good thing okay Time zone is the major one though. When I'm there, I work nine to five or whatever I work, you know, here I work just strange, wacky hours. I'm always on. <laughs> yeah. Because- but again, that's kind of obvious. Like there's been plenty of other challenges. Like I mentioned three or four failed fundraising rounds, like seven figure rounds that just fell through last minute for really no great reason other than something shifted and, you know, something happened and there you go. Got to start again. <laughs> yeah. So that's been a challenge. Um, um, tell me about this. Um, you mentioned the problem that you solved last quarter that where you doubled growth. What was involved with that? Is this like a COVID thing or something? No, I would say COVID didn't help us or harm us. Um, early in COVID, we lost some customers. Well, we didn't lose really anyone, but sorry if you can hear the Australian birds chirping. No, in the it's nice. It's fine. <laughs> that's how you know it's 6.45 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite tropical out here. It is nice. 
So we lost some clients who were due to sign up due to COVID. Um, and then we kind of were able to pivot our marketing. We started an outbound strategy in a more kind of, hmm, how can I explain it without overly complicating it? It's almost a franchise model in a way, but more internal than that. So we're able to scale more easily by having more sales reps doing more things. And that actually closed us some nice big clients who are really good. And how are you approaching this? I mean, let's talk about the outbound because you mentioned you're mostly outbound, but you don't like email. So are you sort of doing direct messages or something? I mean, what's what's your strategy now? What's working for you? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn marketing has been very good for us. Okay. LinkedIn is just where everyone is. So I think it's not to be underestimated. It doesn't always work and it's, you know, we're still trying to work out exactly. But you're getting like sales reps to contact. You just go through like say nail sales navigator, find the type of avatar that you want to approach. Say you're doing a campaign on, you know, CEOs with 20 people, employees or something like that. And then you just approach them. Um, Do you use a service for that? Yeah. So, I mean, we do a mix of mainly like in mails, right? Um, Okay. And we're finding the manual approaches tend to work best. Manual approach. Yeah. You've obviously tried the other ones. I used to service like Cleverly, which is uh, like sort of a, an autoresponder that goes through and, and just, you know, sort of pings and hits them with four messages. Yeah. I mean, we have tried things like that. Um, they do work sometimes. We're trying to figure out what works better. Yeah. In terms of the automated or manual, but, you know, manual is what LinkedIn likes more anyway. So I'd kind of prefer if we can find a model that works that way. And you do it through just, they're not logging into your account. These are your representatives. So they say like, hi, I'm, you know, John at Speed Lancer. And so they're manually yes. going that way. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So that's been quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I think just like having our price points, having that new outbound channel um, and then customer referrals, like, you know, Right. So referrals and kind of expecting some new clients to come in soon, which is great. Um, yeah. So we close a mix of like small clients, big clients, and it just sort of. What's the messaging that you use? <laughs> what do you use in LinkedIn? Like what's, what do you find's working? You say like, I'm imagining yeah. if, if I were in your position, I would be saying, Hey, um, you know, to this prospect, how do you handle your filling the gaps of, you know, certain services, how do you handle that now? Is that like, you just sort of do a like classic direct response sort of, um, question like yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, if you're running a podcast, you know, we can target you and say, Hey, I notice you're running this podcast. We have, well, here's an example workflow and we'll actually send them a deck. Or I think that might be like a follow-up sequence or something or a follow-up message. If they reply, we'll send them ultimately a deck uh-huh. that shows clear examples, customer testimonials, the pricing in it. So that's been really nifty. Uh, I'd, I'd say that's the number one thing just in the sales process is having those decks in order. But in terms of the copy itself, I haven't seen it in a while, but it would be something like, you know, hey, Jordy, you know, I see your podcast is producing and, and editing the podcast a challenge for you. We have a service that, and then we list out what we can do. It's basically just like problem solution. Right. Okay. Maybe and you send like sort of a case study or an example. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. Social Good. proof and and referrals. You mentioned your referral system. What what are you finding works for your referrals? Yeah, honestly, we've never found a system or a methodology that works for referrals. 
other than have happy customers and they'll probably refer you. Okay. But like some of our agency customers will never refer anyone. So VCs would ask me and like we were targeting agencies pretty heavily. Um, VCs would then ask, oh, so like how are your referrals going? And I would have to explain that, okay, they're really satisfied, but they're not going to give referrals because this is their secret sauce. Secret sauce, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that sucked. So I would say like factor that into your model. If you're selling to someone who's not willing to give you a case study, then that actually reduces the revenue you're getting from that sales channel. Yeah. So maybe try finding another another niche. Did you have to pivot away from agencies then? Yeah, I mean, agencies have never been my favorite. They're great customers. Yeah. But they're not necessarily the ones that can build you those case studies that I think you need to really succeed in sales. Right. You need case studies. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So tell me about um, what your plans for the future are. Where are you at now and where are you headed? Yeah, we'll be opening a round soon. Um, just deciding on the size of the round, either a smaller round now and then a large one at a higher valuation afterwards or whether I go for the you know higher round, higher val right. from the outset or somewhat in the middle. I don't like doing it in, in the middle because then you're neither here nor there and you know. Right. You're cash constrained if you raise somewhere in the middle of where you're looking for. Right. <laughs> Rather raise a small amount and, you know, achieve a certain target. And retain more equity, you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what, what we're going through. And then also, like, working on the story, that's extremely challenging. And I'm really taking my time to get it right. Um, just like the deck and everything like that. We've now got a quite case study focused deck, which I've never done before. Like, I think it's unusual for companies to use case studies when pitching VCs. But I think in our case, as you said, like the freelancing marketplace story is an old one. That's not what we are. Right. And I think people can only understand what we are by seeing what we do. And so so you're essentially getting together like a case study for each sort of uh, market vertical. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Less like full case study oriented, but more using a story of each customer to describe what we're doing for them and and how we're helping them. So in terms of growth, the growth is around getting some more capital so that you can expand into different market verticals. That's essentially... Yeah, and expand within the verticals that we have. Right. And so you, you feel like the platform is solid. It obviously works. You found a marketing growth channels that work with LinkedIn and referrals. And, and so the, really the growth expansion route is just expanding into other market verticals. Yeah. And I'd say most of all, what we've found is how to make our customers sticky. Right. With the recurring them. packages. Yeah. So our customers, 90% of the time will stay more than 12 months, which is just awesome. Yeah. That's great. So yeah, so we've made a few changes. Actually, a big change, and this actually came from an investor I was speaking to about a year ago, um, Alon from Jellix VC. Thanks, Alon. <laughs> um, he, it was his idea to change from monthly to quarterly packages. I said, I don't like retaining customers artificially. If they want to leave, they're going to leave anyway. You okay. know? Are they going to sue us? Are we going to sue them? Probably not. Right. So what's the point? But he said, just, you know, just try it, just do it. And that fundamentally changed our game because... What we found was the majority of churn came within the first two months of someone using our service. And that's because they had bought it and so they got this cost up front and then they need to recoup value by using our service. Now, if they're not using our service because they haven't made enough effort or intention to do so and there's a bit of friction because it is a new model, then they're just going to leave because that becomes the easiest thing to do. So 
artificially locking a customer in for three months, we found actually has completely changed their incentive. And it means they work with us and we work with them. And by the time they're with us for three months, it's very rare that they leave. Okay, that's very interesting. Do you do that? Do you even not offer a monthly anymore? No, we don't do monthly. You don't do monthly, okay. I will say no, yeah. Okay. Because like ultimately, if someone's not willing to sign up three months of service, and we're guaranteeing the outcomes too, if they're not happy with the task, we replace it. Okay, so there so is like, a money-back guarantee then after the 90 days? Task replacement. Like okay. we have guarantees. Okay, right? okay. So you're not giving the money back, but they're at least getting the work. They're guaranteed the work. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, we stand by that. So I know when I pitch to a customer that they're going to be happy. We don't want them to not be happy. So then if they've got a problem with three months versus one month, then they probably don't have ongoing work for us. Okay. In which case, we kind of don't need them as a customer. Right. No, that makes sense. Uh, that makes sense. So you're sort of front-loading the, the onboarding, losing that churn in the first 90 days. Yes, which is a critical moment of churn. Yeah, I think more companies should try that. That's, that's really good. I mean, obviously, people do the annual, right? But that's different. Well, annual's a bit more selfish. So we could go annual, but that's that becomes a, okay, you're really locking the customer in. You're really making them need to think about it a lot more. Like, they need to then go to their manager, mm-hmm. get a year's worth of approvals. They have to really feel comfortable using you, so they probably need a trial period to begin with anyway. Yeah. Whereas three months is almost a perfect trial period. And it's, it's interesting because you don't see it a lot. You don't see that. Like if no quarterlies are very rarely used. Yeah, that from what I've seen anyway. Like I've never been asked to sign up for a quarterly. Service. No, that's true. Uh, but on every call with a traditional business, like every sales call, at the beginning they say, "So what's the lock-in? Is it annual or something like that?" Uh-huh. And so I could probably get away with saying, "Yeah, it's just annual," and blowing it off. But like I just know, you know, it's not just annual to them. They're signing on for a new solution. Whereas I can genuinely say, yeah, it's only quarterly. You know, we're not going to lock you in beyond that, but we like to work with our customers long-term. So we want you to stay beyond a quarter because you want to stay with us. And so that's been, yeah. It's been really good. Okay, so what are the... And also it's nice for me to pitch it. What are the packages then, the uh, options? You have, say, like a a starter package, a medium, and and an enterprise, and they're just three months? Or or what, can you tell me what you're... yeah, our two core packages, we've got a starter package at $500 a month. Yeah. And that's a credit-based But it's not really, it's $1,500, right? Because it's a quarter. Yeah, well, $500 per month. Okay, yeah, okay. Bill, sorry, quarterly commitments, but paid monthly. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so $500 a month, that's a credit-based system. So they've got $500 to spend on our platform. If they don't use it, then it rolls over to the next month. If they go above it, we charge their credit card for the excess. So that's the starter plan. But what's worked really well is actually our um, unlimited plan. And that's 3500 a month. And that includes four consecutive tasks, meaning that's how we throttle it. And the idea is, like, we've got some customers who say to us, like, don't expect us to use all four tasks all the time. We just want, like, you know, these projects done every month. And it might only be two or three major projects. So our margin on them is going to be a lot higher. But then we've calculated for other customers... Um, who use all four tasks all the time, we've calculated our margins and it actually sits, you know, where we were sitting before with the credit-based model anyway. Okay, that's very interesting. Well, it's good. And it sounds like uh, that was sort of a little, there was a lot of, are you getting on the phone and just speaking with customers? What do you think if we did this? Or did your investors suggest it and you just, I mean, how did you change over from the monthly to that? And how was that reception when you did that? Which part, the like quarterly plans? We were asking about the pricing specifically. No, the pricing specifically when you went from the monthly to 
the quarterly, how did that, how was it received by your customers or did you, you know, like transitioning away from monthly? Was it fine? I'd say almost better. And it's so weird. Like, as I mentioned a few years ago, converting from one-offs to recurring, you would think that like technically that's a higher burden, but no, it becomes easier to sell. And I think when you have a, like in our case, when we have a quarterly plan versus a monthly plan, it certainly hasn't become more difficult to sell. I think people, it solidifies in their brain that, okay, we're really signing on board to, so that you can help us. They, they start thinking three months ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got these issues three months in the future and you're going to be the ones that solve them. Wow, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. I think that's a natural way of thinking actually because an organization's not going to be dead in three months. Yeah. So for them to think one month at a time, they're like, okay, will I have a need this month? Will I have a need the next month? What if I don't have a need in the third month? You know, and it becomes more cognitive load than just, okay, it's a three-month subscription. You've either got this need or you don't. Right. Um, and so I don't think it's harmed sales at all. Really? Well, it sounds like it's helped. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, it has. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, Adam, I want to thank you. We're coming up to the top of the hour. So I want to thank you so much for your time. How can people reach out to you or find out more about what you're doing? Yeah. So we're at speedlancer.com. Uh, my email, adam at speedlancer.com, Twitter, Stone Adam, LinkedIn, Adam Stone. It sounds like a wrap now. And yeah. Great. Plenty of ways to find me. <laughs> okay. Thanks again. So, And look forward to keeping in touch and hearing about more of your, your growth happening with Speedlancer. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciated the chat. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner.